Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It's your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I am joined by Mr. Robert Greenwald. He's the president of Brave New Films and the director of Racially Charged, America's Misdemeanor Problem. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be with you. Yes, so Robert, Racially Charged, a documentary, it's about the racial history and modern discrimination of the American misdemeanor system. What more can you tell us about this documentary? Well, the documentary was inspired by a book by Alexandra Natapoff, who's a professor at Harvard, in which she dug into the facts about in the United States of America, there are between 12 and 13 million people who are in the carceration system as a result of misdemeanors. Walking, spitting, jaywalking for the most part. The most minor of infractions that frankly, middle class white people do not get arrested for, do not get cited for. Over and over again, the statistics are extraordinary. How these misdemeanors going way back to the time right after the Civil War reconstruction up through and including today, misdemeanor laws formerly known as the black codes are used for oppression, they're used for suppression, they're used for profiting, they're used for bringing people into the system. And then the system works its horrors on many people. Absolutely, it does. And as a lawyer, to those watching, I can tell you that a misdemeanor is generally something for which the punishment is less than a year in prison, whereas a felony is just the opposite, as in more a year or more in prison. And so you think of a misdemeanor as something very nominal, very small, something that would not take away your livelihood or opportunity to flourish. But from what it seems, Mr. Greenwald, very much that is not the case in the system. And why do you think that is? Well, one of the things that Alexandra says in the book, and we talk about it in the film, which is based on the book, is based on human stories, it's based with a series of experts. She says over and over again, no misdemeanor is minor. What does that mean? It means for somebody who is struggling or somebody who doesn't have significant means being cited for a misdemeanor, whether it's putting you in jail itself, putting an ankle bracelet on you, fining you. It helps destroy, literally destroy significant parts of your life. Home, job, transportation, sometimes even losing, losing the ability to see your children. And so that system has grown and grown and grown. And in certain areas, I mean, we saw it with Ferguson, where it's a system now designed to provide income so that the system can keep going. We were in the middle of production and the horrors of police murders rose their head to another, rose to another level. And we realized, and maybe other folks may have known this, but certainly I didn't and many of the team didn't, that misdemeanors were very, very often the gateway for police murders. Whether it was a counterfeit bill, or whether it was a charge of loitering, whether it was a charge of trespassing. Those were ways that the police entered into people's lives. And unfortunately, all too often, there were horrible results, sometimes murder. 
And when you say murder, are you saying murder of the police officers themselves? Or are you talking about the individuals who've been arrested? Individuals who've been arrested or being charged or being accused, remember nobody's been convicted, often, too often resulting in the death of those individuals. And we also saw in the middle of production with the outbreak of COVID in which we all separated and worked from home as we all are now, the people you literally might be arrested, let's say for trespassing. Now you're in jail, but you're in jail where there are almost no precautions taken around COVID, right? We've seen the statistics, the number of people who got infected, the number of people who died. So a trespassing violation could turn in to a death sentence. And we interviewed a man, it's in the film, and he talked about the terror and the video, the films of how close together people were, the conditions under the best of circumstances that were borderline inhuman. You add COVID to it and it becomes really a, a, truly a nightmare. And that's one of the reasons all of us at Brave New Films, a small nonprofit, were so passionate about making the film, about getting the film out and having it available for free all over the country. Our goal is to have a thousand screenings by June 30th. People can go to Brave New Films, they can sign up, they can get a study guide for school, they can get a reflection guide for a faith screening, they can do it in their home. If it's safe and appropriate, they can do it with advocacy groups. So there's a tremendous opportunity to help tell this story. And it's really systemic. Right, if you get, you know, we talk about systemic racism, systemic oppression, capitalism run wild, and this misdemeanor system, this infrastructure really exemplifies all of those elements. Absolutely, it does. And I think people do not necessarily take this into account when they think of criminal justice reform or change. But it's so impactful because as I believe you said, up to 13 million people a year get caught up in the system, mostly poor or people of color. And also it's just almost a form of abuse that feeds into capitalism. So how I guess does your documentary Racially Charged really shine a light on this issue? But we do it in a couple of ways. One, and I was so struck by this in Alexandra's book and in the research. But we went back to the reconstruction era and we found all these stories, all these cases. And then we lined them up with people today. It was almost, and you'll see it in the film word for word, what happened right after reconstruction. People were arrested, people were fined, people were locked up. And then today, and we have a few four or five amazing people in the film whose lives have been torn asunder. Because of misdemeanor, I believe they're going to be on the show, versions of the show over the next period of time. So we took those personal stories, we put them at the center of the film. Because one of the things I always talk about at Brave New Films, what we try to do is put a face on policy. Those were the faces. And then we have a series of experts, really eloquent, smart, thoughtful people who can take us through the historical pattern. Who can talk about what black codes meant, how they were put in place in order solely and exclusively to arrest and oppress and stop black people from the forward progress 
they were making after the Civil War. So the historical connection is one element. The personal stories, past and present, is the other element. And then what we're doing now is we're having screenings all around the country with many of the really smart, thoughtful district attorneys where you can see there can be a difference. This doesn't have to wait for somebody in Washington DC. This can happen now with good district attorneys. It's local, city, state, county. So there's lots that we can do where we can become active, we can become involved. Hopefully we can use the film, whether you're on, you know, on YouTube or Twitter or TikTok or Instagram, or Instagram stories, we have it there so that people can help inform, arouse and motivate their friends, colleagues and relatives. Absolutely, because it's such a powerful thing and people need to know this. And especially when they talk about you know, the oppressions of slavery or Jim Crow have gone away and they don't realize, no, that they've just changed shape and they come in different forms now. And something that happened last week was about having New York rid itself of marijuana regulations in terms of just, you know, everyday commercial recreational use, which seems to be big because that was something that was a low level misdemeanor, but did interject people in the system. How do you see that potentially changing the landscape? Well, what I hope we can do is by showing the large scale nature, the fact of how many millions of people are impacted, the fact that it does so much harm. Is these are not dangerous people for the most part. Yes, there are always some dangerous people, but those are not the ones with misdemeanors. These are not the ones that are threatening your life or my life or anybody's life. And we're spending tens of millions of dollars finding, chasing, arresting and locking up people who never should be part of the system. And with the district attorneys and with local jurisdiction, I think there's real options and real possibilities that we can change this. And that's an exciting idea. That's something that motivates and energizes many of us. Absolutely, and me as well. So can you tell us, Mr. Greenwald, where can people find racially charged America's misdemeanor problem? They can go to bravenewfilms.org on our website. They can go to our Facebook page. They can follow me on Twitter. They can go to Instagram. They can go to TikTok. You go someplace and we will have the film there or parts of the film. Some people 30 minutes is too long. There's 30 seconds, there's one minute, there's two minutes. The important thing is spreading the message as widely as possible and everybody can do something. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Adrian. Hi, it's Adrian Lawrence joining you once again. And this time I am with activist, black poet, essayist, and interdisciplinary artist. Also happens to be the author of Hoodwitch. That is Miss Felita Hicks. Thank you for joining us, Felita. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yes, so I know you're featured in the documentary Racially Charged America's Misdemeanor Problem. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Absolutely. Um, I was a college student when I opened my first bank account and I had checks. One of those checks went to a local grocery store, HEB, and it bounced. It was for $25 and that $25 turned into 45 days in the Hayes County Jail. And um, that turned into me losing my vehicle, losing lots of things that I owned at the time. 
And the experience actually ended up impacting the rest of my life as far as some decisions I had to make. When it came to school, when it came to um, I'm an adopt, I'm a <laughs> sorry, birth parent. Um, yeah, it impacted a lot of things. Wow, um, how old were you when that happened? I believe I was around 21, 22. Um, it's been a minute. Actually, I'm 35. It was 25. I was 25. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it sounds like it has been extremely impactful. In terms of you spent those days in jail, kind of what was the aftermath for you? Well, the thing that most people don't know about pretrial incarceration is that you can sit in there without necessarily knowing your charge, without speaking to an attorney. Um, and I, my bail was set at $600. I did not have $600 saved up. Um, I could have gone through a bail bondsman, would have been $60 if I had done that, but I didn't even have $60. So the whole entire time I'm wondering why exactly am I in here? Who can I talk to to get out? How can I, you know, how can I make this move any sort of faster? I didn't see the judge until my very last day there. Um, and I was taken into a courtroom with handcuffs and cuffs around my legs. And I just couldn't believe that I was in there for $25 and that that had turned into this, right? Being in an orange jumpsuit. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't understand is that uh, there's a lot of shame associated with uh, you know, these kinds of crimes that are more than likely happening because of a low income or because of uh, not having access to certain services. And so that's something that, um, that stayed with me and that's something that I wanna advocate for. Absolutely, it sounds like it's almost like penalizing you for being impoverished as opposed to having actually done anything wrong. Um, and, and I would imagine that that's quite jarring, especially being uh, shackled essentially. Uh, now, and so you're a young person, you're shackled, you don't have a full understanding of the system. And I know a lot of people would think, aren't you entitled to a lawyer? As an attorney myself, I remember Gideon v. Wainwright where they said you have a right to counsel. But what happened in your situation? I did not see my court appointed attorney until I was already in front of a judge. So there was no opportunity for me to do any sort of research to find out exactly what the check was for until I was sitting in front of my court appointed attorney in front of the judge. Um, I didn't understand all of the charges at the time. And so I wanted to plead no contest. I didn't want to say that I intentionally wrote a check that I wanted to intentionally steal anything. But I didn't have anyone who explained to me that no contest still meant guilty. And so that's uh, that that kind of communication didn't happen with my court appointed attorney. Um, that court appointed attorney, I believe, is a judge now in my county. Um, fun, yeah. Uh, uh, what state are we talking about here? Texas. All right, now good times. Uh, now essentially uh, in the aftermath, so you spent these days in jail and then what happened? Um, after I left the jail, I was a college student, so I was in a graduate program. Uh, I was able to get my MFA eventually. Uh, and after several years of trying to work my way through poverty, uh, in 2019, I was able to advocate with Mono Amiga and several other grassroots organizations with uh, our San Marcos City Council. And we were able to help pass one of the policies, which meant that if an officer pulled over or had anybody who had a citation eligible offense, which my charge would have been a citation eligible offense. They have to provide the citation if it's a citation eligible offense. And that's something that you think would happen anyways, but that's not always what happens. Very often people are being arrested, which means they're more likely to 
spend nights or you know weeks or months in the jail pretrial, um, or they're more likely to have incidents with the police or misdemeanors. Uh, things like George Floyd, it was a twenty dollar charge, and that is a misdemeanor. And we see what yeah. the outcome of that was. Yes, yes, uh, horrific outcome indeed. And so you're saying right now, kind of the way the law is structured, and I'm sure it's state by state, but right now. Uh, or at least in your circumstances, you were not provided with the information in terms of, so you could really figure out what was going on with your case. And because you couldn't necessarily get in touch with your attorney who was court appointed, then you were essentially not getting the information you needed so you could defend yourself. Absolutely, and now what's happened is that it took <laughs> it took nine years for me to finally understand what happened in my case, to understand the charges and to understand what my options could have been. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of people need to know. They need to know what their options are and they need to know how to be able to um, speak up for themselves. And so that's something that I hope and does happen uh, in the next few years. I'm working right now with Civil Rights Corps as their poet in residence. And one of my goals is to be able to take their policies and make it easy to understand for lay people. How can I make sure folks who are just walking down the street can interpret their local laws, can interpret their state laws, and how can they get involved without completely upending their lives? Oh my God, that that brings me so much joy to hear that. Because as someone who is a lawyer and can essentially make translations, I think it's appalling that we have to translate the things that govern our everyday life. Because you know my mother can't understand those things. She'll pass them my way, but there's no reason she should have to. If it's exactly. governing how you interact with this world, then it should be understandable to you and me. And so in your new area of work in terms of making almost the law palatable and understandable to the vast majority of people in this world who don't have an Esquire behind their name, what have you found to be the biggest challenges? I think the biggest challenge is, is talking about the shame associated with it. Um, there's this uh, there's this common misconception that if someone is in jail or they are being approached by the police, they must have been doing something wrong, and they may not have been doing anything wrong. And charges can be given to them um, unfairly sometimes. And so that's that's one thing to address is that the law is meant to protect us, not to hurt us. And if it's not protecting us, then what is it doing? It's protecting someone else who may have more power than us. And so that's something that um, that's something that I, I hope that a lot of people understand. They have more power than they know about. They have more agency for themselves. And so that's something that is going to take a little while. I'm trying to interpret some of my state policies right now. I know that there's a lot of things going to the legislation. We're in our 84th legislation right now. And it's hundreds and thousands of pages worth of legislation. I know they just introduced the George Floyd Act here in Texas and it's hundreds of pages. And you have to really wanna sit down and read through all of that and understand how is that gonna impact you? How is that gonna change policing? And how is that gonna affect my county? Cuz my county can make a different decision than my city. And my city can make a different decision than the legislator. So it's a lot, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It definitely sounds like it's a lot of work, but I'm sure it's work that is making everything very much the better for us all. So I very much appreciate that. And in terms of kind of next steps and how you see this world with the change, when we see George Floyd and the trials going on right now, where do you think things are headed? 
I think that what the country is really aching for right now is a clear view of what the future can look like. What does it mean to make those changes locally and statewide? How are we going to have that implement implemented day to day? So does that mean that I'm not going to be stopped if I'm walking across the street, if I'm jaywalking, which is a, you know again a misdemeanor? Does that mean that I am not going to be pulled over every single time I forget to use a turn signal when I'm by myself on the road? How are we going to see that day to day? And so I'm actually working on my memoir, which is related to my experience and my pretrial incarceration here in Hayes County. And what I hope to do is dream. I want to dream about the future. What does it look like? Can I move through the world without fearing for my safety? Can I move through the world without being worried that I'm going to be stopped? And um, have all those prejudices used against me? Yes, because that's a very important thing and also a very powerful thing. Uh, so I very much appreciate that and I appreciate all the work you do. And I guess for anyone out there who's looking to learn more about this, in addition to watching Racially Charged America's Misdemeanor Problem, what would you recommend for them? Um, obviously, please join uh, us on Civil Rights Corps. Uh, we have, uh, I'm a poet in residence, but we also have an artist in residence and a musician in residence. And so all of us are gonna be working really hard to find a way to communicate with our community in a more palatable way. Um, I am doing lots of work, so please follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Um, I think that artists are gonna be the people who help us move forward and help us understand and get a good view of the future. And so that's the work I wanna do. Yes, and I know you're going to do that work in a very powerful way. Thank you so much, Jaylita Hicks. Thank you for joining us and also for the work you do. And um, yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having me.